Welcome to The Wrap on WKXL AM and FM. I'm Paul Hodes. We're here to talk about politics in New Hampshire. My guest this morning for our first segment is Monica Cialfi. Monica is a lawyer who lives in Concord, New Hampshire. She's a longtime reproductive rights activist and served as the president of NARAL Pro-Choice New Hampshire Foundation. Monica, along with other activists and leaders, worked to bring about the defeat of Governor Sununu's first nomination of Gordon McDonald in 2019. Governor Sununu had nominated Gordon McDonald, Attorney General, to serve as the Chief Justice of the New Hampshire Supreme Court, despite the objections of advocates for choice, like Monica, and objections from people who said that Gordon McDonald had never served as a judge. Monica is a former New Hampshire Senior Assistant Attorney General, something I think a designation she and I share because I worked there too many, many years ago. She served as New Hampshire's Deputy Insurance Commissioner and ran the state of New Hampshire Employee Health Plan. She's also served as a senior advisor to Congresswoman Annie Custer. She currently works as a policy advisor for a large nonprofit based in New York City. Fascinating, fascinating background, Monica. And... uh, uh, to introduce you briefly to folks on the air, tell us a little bit about your current work, and then we'll delve into the subject of uh, this morning's chat about the Gordon McDonald renomination. Well, thank you, Paul. Thanks for having me, and um, it's great to be here. Thanks for elevating this topic. Uh, it's very timely. Uh, it feels a little bit like Groundhog Day uh, because we're. Uh, you know, revisiting topics that, you know, as you just mentioned, were, um, uh, were you know, considered a year and a half or so ago, but, um, but here we are. So it's, it's great to be here and talking about the Governor Sununu's renomination of Gordon McDonald. So, um, you know, my work in the reproductive rights area over, over many, many years, you know, has been completely as a volunteer. You know, I, I've been active in, um, in the movement and in organizations and with other, other groups here in New Hampshire. My work in New York City is with a, is a private nonprofit uh, company that works to remove barriers to, um, uh, to work for individuals who have... Uh, uh, who have experienced, you know, either disabilities or other barriers to, you know, self uh, independence and employment. So it's a it's a multinational, actually, a multi state uh, um, nonprofit. And uh, I do policy work. I also work in some of the corporate internal corporate services uh, functions for the organization. But it's quite separate <laughs> um, from the work that I spend, like all, all my other time, my free time. Uh, uh, focusing on uh, reproductive rights. So, you know, what the situation has has changed quite a bit uh, mm-hmm. on the political side uh, since the last battle over Gordon McDonald's nomination. Um, uh, the, in the last go round, uh, when uh, the attorney general was appointed, uh, Democrats held a four to one uh, majority on the executive council. Uh, for our listeners who may not who may not know, the Executive Council is a five-member council 
Uh, each councillor represents a large swath of the state and the executive council, among other duties, is responsible for uh, voting on nominations that the governor makes. Um, and now, uh, after the 2020 election, uh, uh, with, with, with all the national news and everything mm -hmm. that's going on, but in New Hampshire, uh, the result of the 2020 election was a turnover of the levers of government to Republican control. The Republicans now control the executive council with a four to one Republican majority. They control the state legislature, they control the state Senate and, and the corner office. So, so the, uh, the political environment for the Sununu nomination, which was the first thing he did at the first executive council in the, in the new term was to nominate Gordon McDonald, not having made a nomination of anybody else since the first uh, nomination went down. The political environment's very different. How do you, how do you see that, and and how do you see the the job in front of in front of you and other uh, pro-choice advocates? Well, you're right. I mean, the the situation in terms of the composition of the council has changed. There was a three to two Democratic majority the last time Gordon McDonald was nominated, and now, as you say, it is a four to one Republican majority. I misspoke, uh, I misspoke by the way. Previously, there was three to two. Now it's four to one Republican. Exactly. Right. But that's not all that's changed. I mean, that certainly is a different landscape. But what's even uh, you know more challenging, uh, more concerning, uh, which I think raises the stakes even higher, is what has happened federally, you know, what has happened at the U.S. Supreme Court and who is on that court and the makeup of that court now, uh, as opposed to back in 2019. And so with the loss of our beloved Ruth, uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the appointment of Amy Coney Barrett, we now have, for the, I mean, for the first time in nearly a half a century, uh, we have a, uh, a six to three supermajority of, of justices who have clearly expressed their hostility and antipathy towards reproductive rights. So that's, that is different uh, uh, from a year and a half ago. And that direction is what makes focus on the executive council's decision that's coming right up uh, all that m more consequential. And it is coming right up. Uh, Governor Sununu nominated, renominated Gordon McDonald last Thursday, and I believe the hearing is on January 21st. Uh, so that's less than two weeks away. Uh, and uh, there's some expectation that the vote will be immediately thereafter. So picking up on on your point about the change at the federal level in terms of the Supreme Court, you know, when when justices are nominated for uh, for the Supreme Court, they go before the Senate. They um, are studies in uh, question avoidance or answer yes. avoidance, but generally they all, no matter what their political leanings, um, say we'll we'll honor precedent. We don't believe in overturning what is settled law, despite my personal opinion. I'm. You know, and so so generally, after when they're when they're, they then uh, sit on the Supreme Court, and you never know what they're going to do. But they all make 
the the right kinds of noises about upholding the president precedent. And right now, uh, Roe v. Wade um, uh, is 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 the law of the land. They've all made the noises about upholding it, despite the concerns of uh, women's reproductive rights advocates and others uh, that they never mean what they say. Um, what's what's the connection? What's the connection between what may happen at the uh, federal level at the Supreme Court and and New Hampshire? Why are you worried? Yes, uh, great question. And there's a direct link and a direct line. So it's important to think about this. Um, yes, I mean, the, the, it's the question that's sort of glossed or evaded or avoided. And in fact, Last time when Gordon McDonald was nominated at his hearing, he said exactly you know, what you're alluding to, that Roe v. Wade is settled law. He recognizes stare decisis, follows precedent, end of inquiry. Uh, but that can't be the end of the inquiry anymore, uh, any longer. There needs to be a, a great deal more questioning, not only because of the new makeup that I mentioned, but there is uh, a robust, uh, pipeline of cases. There are four cases currently pending at the U.S. Supreme Court, abortion cases, that would either uh, over, overturn Roe entirely or, you know, continue the evisceration process. And there are, you know, close to two dozen uh, cases at the Circuit Court of Appeals so level, abortion cases. Um, so one step away from the U.S. Supreme Court. So there's a there are a ton of cases sort of, you know, barreling through the federal system um, headed towards the supermajority that I mentioned. So the answer that uh, that Gordon McDonald provided a year and a half ago is wholly inadequate uh, in light of that. And so. Um, and I guess I want to add to Paul, it's particularly, it's additionally inadequate because he has no judicial record. He has, he has not served on at the district court level, at the superior court level. We have no idea about his judicial philosophies. We have no opinions or cases to read about how he interprets statutes, how we would look at the state constitution. So we know very little about how he will uh, respond when that day comes, when he can no longer even utter the words, I will follow Roe v. Wade, there will be no Roe v. Wade. So what what will you do, Gordon? And, you know, and then the final you know, leg of the stool, which, you know, we should talk about a little bit is Gordon's personal history, you know, the work that he's been doing uh, over many, many decades. So it's not just that we're pulling some judicial nominee out of a hat and say, how would you handle uh, issues of reproductive rights? How do you view reproductive rights? We're talking about an individual who has a very storied past. So just to, just to put the, a point on it, and then we'll move on to talk about uh, Gordon McDonald's record and his past, is that if uh, one of the cases headed for the United States Supreme Court should result in overturning Roe v. Wade, then it falls to the individual states to uh, rule or to deal with the issue of women's reproductive rights. And in that light, um, it, it, the, the nomination of McDonald gains uh, increased importance because of what 
the concern and danger at, we see at the you know, federal level for overturning Roe v. Wade with a supermajority and numbers of cases coming in. Even with a new Democratic administration, it doesn't affect what the United States Supreme Court, an independent body, could do. So here we that throws us back into New Hampshire. We have a governor who has said that he is pro-choice, and we've had um, uh, numerous uh, attorneys and judges who, at least last time around, came came out supporting Gordon McDonald. They said he was a good lawyer, a smart guy, that he meant what he said about respecting precedent, that um, uh, they they were confident he'd be a good he'd be a good judge. And the governor, when his nomination was voted down uh, along party lines. Um, in a fit of peak, refused to to nominate anybody else, and now has renominated Gordon McDonald to be not just a judge on the New Hampshire Supreme Court, but the chief judge, a fellow who's had no judicial experience. But uh, you and other uh, women's reproductive rights advocates see a pattern in in his past. What is it that you see that is so troubling? Well, there's a lot there that's troubling, uh, but I'd like to first go back to the point that you made about the, the states, because it's a really important point, and I'm glad you mentioned it. You know, when Roe v. Wade uh, ceases to be the law of the land, there is no other backup plan at the federal level. And uh, it's unlikely, even with the, the 2020 election, uh, President-elect Joe Biden and, and, and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris, Harris have a great deal on their plate. It keeps getting bigger, actually, as the uh, recent events unfold. Uh, changing the makeup of the U.S. Supreme Court is probably not going to be the first priority. And, uh, and who knows, uh, you know, in terms of federal legislation. So what happens is, you know, exactly as you mentioned, Paul, it's it will the 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 level of protection, uh, whether it's great or non-existent, uh, of reproductive rights devolves to the states. And the current situation throughout the fifty states is is a great roadmap. It's a great indicator of of what New Hampshire will be facing. There are there are about you know twenty states in which uh, abortion will be effectively illegal. Uh, when Roe v. Wade falls. And there's a much smaller proportion of states, you know, maybe a dozen or so, states like Massachusetts, New York, where protections have been put in place so that when this uh, reversion to the states uh, occurs, there's already, uh, there are already protections in place. Those states have recognized um, a full range of, of reproductive rights access to contraception all the way to access to abortion. And, um, but in New been, Hampshire- has, I'm sorry, has that been by legislative action? Yes, yes. I, I think there may be a state or two where uh, courts have recognized protections within their state constitutions. I think the majority of them, Paul, are, are, um, are a product of legislative action. So here in New Hampshire, there's, there's very little. There's really going to be a, uh, a clean slate for the New Hampshire Supreme Court if, if cases move along. We, we currently have the parental uh, notification law, uh, but there isn't, there is very little other statutory law, and there's certainly no decisional law, case law, about uh, whether uh, our state constitution 
uh, protects a, a woman's right to choose, or protects the right of privacy to make uh, personal decisions about, you know, bodily autonomy, you know, uh, dignity, integrity, all those kinds of things, equal rights, that part of our state constitution has not been tested. So these are, um, this, there is, is, is a clean slate and who will have an enormous outsized amount of influence on that five member court would, would certainly be the chief justice, uh, you know, Gordon McDonald. So what do we know? What can we expect? Uh, what can we find out before uh, before he ascends to that position, well, you know, we look at the record. So, um, it, 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 you know, it's a, it's concerning. I mean, from back very at the very beginning of his career, uh, working for U.S. Senator Gordon Humphrey, all the way up to uh, so that's back in the late '80s, mid '80s, all the way up to 2016 when he was a delegate at the Republican National Convention for Marco Rubio and worked for Marco Rubio, Senator Marco Rubio's campaign, helped put the platform together, the Republican Party platform, and everything in between, uh, representing the diocese over many, many years, which opposes abortion, of course, in most forms of contraception, uh, helping uh, former Attorney General Kelly Ayotte argue uh, in defense of the unconstitutional parental notification law, uh, you know, throughout. So all of these activities, um, you know, paint the same picture. It's not that he went back and forth. They were continually, uh, you know, he was continually putting his his energy, uh, expertise, effort into um, causes that were hostile to reproductive rights. So what what are we to think? Going back to the uh, federal level, uh, if the Supreme Court was to strike down Roe v. Wade or important parts of the constitutional protections afforded under Roe v. Wade, um, aren't we in a better position federally now than we were uh, a couple of days ago, given that we'll have Biden and Harris at the in the White House? We have uh, with the results out of Georgia, um, at least nominal control of the Senate. Now, I, I, and I say that knowing that there are some uh, Democratic members of the Senate who may very well uh, not support women's reproductive reproductive rights. And we have a narrow majority in the House with Nancy Pelosi as Speaker. Um, so at least over the next two-year period of time, over these next two years, uh, there is a chance that if the Supreme Court does what has has been the hope of the anti-choice, anti-women's reproductive rights uh, uh, force in this country, uh, that legislatively uh, there could be a federal solution that would step in to uh, reinvigorate the the provisions of Roe as federal legislation. Is that possible? I don't know. Um, I, I mean, I'm, there are, there are so many uh, competing priorities, as I mentioned. And as you indicate, there are Democrats in the Senate who are not necessarily uh, on the side of, of, of reproductive rights. There are you know, a, a couple, and we would, as you know, as you're saying, we would need every single Democrat, unless we pick up one or two 
uh, uh, Republican senators. Um, so I, I mean, that's not my line of work. I don't know how to game that out or where that priority would be. Um, there's, uh, you know, it, it, it would it would take some effort, of course, and um, it's not a sure thing. I mean, what we have to look at is what is here and now, um, which is a, a markedly changed situation, uh, a far more uh, precarious uh, environment at the state level. And, um, and, and it could go either way. We don't, you know, New Hampshire is, is a purple state, right? And right now we have Republican control in, in um, you know, in both the House and Senate and in the corner office. So it's, who knows what's going to pass. There are definitely pending bills this session at the, in the state house that are very troubling and, and uh, very, um, antagonistic to say the least to reproductive rights you know the, the typical slate is there again so i think we have to look at at the here and now i mean you make a perfectly absolutely legitimate point that thank goodness um the democrats uh hold the seats of power in in washington and we would hope that this this would be high on the priority list uh, of the new administration uh I think it, it's a it's a question as to everything that the country is facing right now in terms of the pandemic and the economy and uh, the challenges to the republic. Not to you know overstate things. Uh, there's there's um, there's a lot of work to do. Yep. Our focus is here right now. There's an opportunity for executive counselors to press and probe. Uh, I think the the vast, well, the, the majority of New Hampshire citizens support uh, a woman's right to choose. They, uh, a majority of Republicans believe that uh, we should trust women to make the right decisions um, about their uh, about their bodies. So that's that's what we need to focus on and look at. We've been talking with Monica Cialfi, a lawyer, advocate, highly experienced uh, advocate for women's reproductive rights about the situation in New Hampshire with the nomination of Gordon McDonald to be Chief Justice. Folks, stay tuned. There will be more as we head on into 2021. Monica, thanks for joining us. Welcome back. This is The Wrap. I'm Paul Hodes on WKXL AM and FM, delving deep into New Hampshire politics. And what a week it has been in our state, in our nation. We are joined in this segment by veteran New Hampshire political journalist Kevin Landrigan. Kevin's credentials go deep and wide and long. He and I have known each other a long time, and he is perhaps one of the, he is certainly one of the most astute observers of the political scene in New Hampshire uh, that we have. And I'm so glad, Kevin, that you're joining us and, and still reporting um, the political news in the state. So, so yeah. what, what happened last <laughs> week in, in New Hampshire politics? Yeah, it was, um, it was really a crazy week. Great to be back with you, Paul. Um, uh, we, I think certainly because of the, a combination of the, the turbulent times we're in and also COVID caused uh, kind of unprecedented um, openings for both um, 
Governor Chris Sununu's third inaugural, which, you know, became a, a private ceremony, really. And um, uh, because of threats outside his home. Uh, and, and I think also, it wasn't well stated, but I also think it was, um, he was concerned about optics as well, as we saw outside the state house while he was being sworn inside the building privately, there were a couple of hundred protesters there. They were, they were peaceful, but they were loud and they were very um, uh, kind of in your face about um, Governor Sununu's uh, steps that he's taken during the pandemic uh, that they greatly disagreed with. And of course, a day earlier at the University of New Hampshire, we had an, another kind of unprecedented historic event where the legislature started hold the New Hampshire House had its first session outside, kind of in a, like a drive-in movie theater environment where all the representatives were in cars and um, hey, and some of, the, some of the Democrats thought it was a drive-in movie, but the movie was a horror show. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, this was not. Uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre or um, <laughs> beach, beach Blanket Bingo or Smoking the Bandit, whatever you, those, those by the way, are, are three of the top 10 most popular drive-in movies. Um, yeah. uh, because I was kind of, before this, this whole um, carnival in New Hampshire at UNH started, I, uh, I was curious about that. Uh, bit a bit of movie movie trivia, and I know you're a, you're an entertainment entertainer yourself, so I thought yeah. you might enjoy that. But um, yeah. um, but thankfully, uh, everything was um, unpredictable and um, and could have been incendiary, but it wasn't. What happened, of course, in Washington, where it became violent and um. Uh, and riotous and so tragic what we saw there in the Capitol where you, where you used to work, Paul. I mean, but to see that place become, you know, uh, an armed insurrection site is, I, 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 I'm not sure I, I, I'd ever lived long enough to see that happen here. You know, I, I just to, to briefly talk yeah. about that, um, I have to tell you, you know, on I, I was glued to the television as a lot sure. of us were. Sure. And um, the first thing, one of the first things I saw when I turned on uh, uh, the, the tube was uh, Annie Custer in a yep. gas mask in the balcony. I recognized Annie yep. uh, behind this big gas mask yep. and then uh, watched what was happening in real time. And, you know, I mean, I just, my flashback was to not only other chilling events in the past. I mean, whether, you know, 9-11, sure. when I was a kid, the Cuban Missile Crisis, the assassination right. of JFK, but this was certainly momentous. And, and, and for me, I mean, looking at the chamber, I, I was, you know, honored to represent the people of the state of New Hampshire for four years, and that's where I worked. And when all of a sudden the place is transformed into a barricaded, uh, a barrack, a barricaded um, uh, a place where the capital plainclothes capital police were drawing drawing their weapons and trying to keep a, a mob at bay. You'd say this is not <laughs> this is certainly not the United States that we thought we were living in. That it looks like something out of a third world a third world country. But um, 
the it's a uh, it, it's a huge it's a huge subject. Fortunately, we didn't have a repeat here. Right. One of the interesting things, Kevin, is that um, when Governor Sununu canceled his inauguration ceremony over concerns that, uh, about armed protesters who were protesting his mask uh, mandate, everybody right. universally condemned that. Nobody should be subject to armed harassment and intimidation. Many on the left have have not said, well, you know, you, 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 you get, you get what, what you deserve or your policies have consequences. But uh, the folks on the left have been pointing out that, um, uh, that they believe that Sununu has not done enough to protect the state against the growth and danger of armed threats, um, including vetoing a gun, com, what they call common sense gun safety bills, vetoing bills about background check loopholes and bills that would strengthen public safety. And the first law he signed as a governor repealed New Hampshire's longstanding concealed carry licensing requirement. And, and some of the people who are protesting the governor about his mask mandate and who uh, are some of the same people who uh, came armed to the state house hearing to side with Sununu when he either vetoed those bills or signed pro-gun pro -gun bills. So it's a, um, you know, and uh, it, it's, it's a kind of reap what you sow according uh, to a lot of folks on the left who also see that um, uh, in the months that heavily armed white supremacists stood outside the Black Lives Matter events, and, and I was there, and yeah, you know, there sure. were large groups of people with uh, carrying long guns and dressed in tactical gear, and uh, he, you know, that the governor has not been outspoken uh, about uh, condemning those kinds of armed gatherings and condemning uh, the, the whatever militia there are in New Hampshire. And people see ties from the, the domestic terrorists who, who raided the US Capitol to a lot of people in New Hampshire, who like the New England Minutemen, et cetera, yeah. um, who, who, are, who may be a little bit uh, below the surface here, but who folks say, and I don't mean to sound like President Trump when I say people say, I'm, 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 I'm characterizing a lot of arguments um, from that I've seen in print, that sure. the governor by inaction has enabled the protests that that caused him to, to cancel his inauguration and has not done enough to to really speak out about the presence of armed militia in New Hampshire. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's certainly a fair that's certainly a fair criticism. I think we saw with this inaugural address from this governor, he's not going to change his mind about gun control. He does not. He's a um, the Second Amendment folks are, are an important part of his political base. Um, he's been loyal to them. They've been loyal to him. Um, but we certainly saw in the speech he gave, um, he was speaking to a number of those um, factions with regard to their public behavior. When he talks about what, to him, what the live free or die motto means, it doesn't mean beating your chest and 
uh, and saying you're superior to everyone else because your ideas are better um, or, um, or trying to throw your weight around, um, either physical or political. But um, it's, it, it's about um, engaging in the arena of ideas with respect and, um, and decency and, and tolerating disagreeing viewpoints and not only tolerating them, but celebrating that we can disagree and, um, but not be disagreeable, you know? Um, yeah, you know, that it was, his inaugural address was, was markedly different than, yeah, totally. than almost every inaugural address of every governor in the past. Generally, 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 you know, people talk about here's here, here's what I want to do. Here's right. what we here's what we've done. Here's what I want to do. Here are some of the important things that we're gonna that we're gonna we're gonna work on. And instead, this was sort of a, a very gentle and yeah. and philosophical. Uh, address about come on folks why can't we just get along right yeah you think that do you think it worked was anybody listening do you yeah, think, do you think <laughs> that that do you think that armed uh, armed militia who are plotting uh, takeovers of either state capitals or the u.s capital um who are who show up with uh, zip ties so that they can uh, hold host hold representatives hostages and uh, and 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 kill people uh, by beating them over the over the head with fire extinguishers are are, are those folks the kind of folks who are going to be amenable to the governor saying golly why can't we just get along <laughs> probably not but um, I think like he felt it had to be said and I'm not sure he. He, he's convinced it's uh, his words alone are going to make much of a difference at all because they're not likely to. But, um, but I think he really felt as if this was a message that needed to be delivered. I mean, um, in less than a month, he'll be presenting a budget, and so and usually, I mean, in that um, inaugurals usually have a lot more meat than this one did, to be sure. But, yeah. um, but any governor less than a month later gets to give a very um, dense political speech. And that's what the budget message will be. That, that's where he'll be spelling out. Here are my, my priorities. Here's what, here are the challenges we face financially and uh, economically. Um, and here's some of my solutions for them. You know, the, um, the latest CARES Act yeah. relief, which, yeah. which seems like a long time ago now, because <laughs> last, last week was like living 10 years. It was. Um, but it did not contain direct economic aid to the states. That was nope. one of the things it, it, didn't, it didn't contain. So there are, um, you know, some, some, some hopeful, a few hopeful glimmers of light. The vaccine is on on its way, although everybody's complaining everywhere about the yes. rollout of the vaccine. And people are um, uh, have, have noted that the governor uh, was was sort of late, late to the game in terms of a mask mandate. And New Hampshire no. is still the state among the New England states with the least uh, restrictive approach to uh, COVID. And we're experiencing a huge spike. I mean, yeah. people, there is community spread. Yeah. Um, it's no not question. just, it's not just confined to uh, nursing homes and, and elder care facilities. 
Uh, and the governor is, you know, went on CNN to to talk about how well we were doing at a time when, if you look at the at the graph of COVID nineteen infection in the state, it's really a, it's scary. Um, how long can the governor kind of uh, uh, put a gloss over over what we're experiencing? How long before? Um, uh, his, but before reality sets in and people start to see that our response to COVID, his response, his leadership uh, has been wanting. Yeah, I think um, so far, so good as far as, right, as far as mm -hmm. Sununu is concerned, he remains popular. Um, and, in, and in some ways it's um, in spite of the numbers, in spite of the data, a word he uses a lot when he talks about um, battling COVID. Um, uh, he comes across, as you know, he comes across as very earnest and very dedicated to this fight. But um, um, but we're having a real problem with with this spike. I mean, uh, it. Um, I forget the number exactly, but. Um, uh, for a while, cases were going up, positive tests were going up, but hospitalizations weren't and fatalities weren't. Well, that's not the case now. I mean, hospitalizations now have gone up. Some ICUs are actually full in some hospitals. I've, I've noted anecdotally, I know some stories about patients being moved from one hospital to another because... Um, because the ICU in one hospital is full and this person's more stable than the rest. So let's send them to another hospital. I mean, death is a different story entirely. I mean, um, you know, um, it took us 27 days to go from 500 to 600 deaths. Okay. 27 days, hundred deaths, yeah, but right. only, only 14 days to go to 700 and only 11 to go to 800. Right. So, and, and what we're seeing is, yes, most of the deaths are in long-term care, but not all of them. And, um, and most of the deaths are folks who are over 70, but not all of them. And so um, um, this, um, and as you pointed out, the vaccine is the silver lining, but we're months away from you know, I mean, many, many months away from getting any kind of herd immunity. In other words, getting any kind of degree of there's enough vac vaccination out there that we're suppressing, actively suppressing this virus. When we're just, we're not going to be there until, I mean, I think May is optimistic. Yeah. For that. So in the meantime, it's, um, it's a real concern. Um, but he, he, the other problem he has, I mean, it's a good thing, but it, it's a problem. And that is economically, we are recovering. So um, state revenues are recovering. Business is recovering. And so he's reluctant to now institute another lockdown or another further restriction to suppress what is clearly... Um, some economic recovery that's overdue, you know? Yeah. Um, 
and it's and, it's a it's a, it's a it's a challenging position to be is. in, both it practically is. and politically. Yeah, because, because you know, for many people, they'd say, "Look, we've got to do whatever we can to." get this under control while we wait for vaccine. We've had a bad response by the federal government in terms of its coordination. There has been none. We're going to get coordination at the federal level, uh, but the state really needs to step up and step up its efforts and clamp down like, 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 you know, so many localities around the, the country are finding that they have to do, even though the, uh, even at the risk of the economy, because I it's life or death. Yes. So as from a political standpoint, it, it's, it's the, it's the worst kind of, uh, it's a, you know, the governor probably sees it as a Sophie's choice and yeah. I'll, I'll, I, I will leave, I'll kind of leave it there. I, you know, I'm not going to impose uh, at this point, my feelings about this, but uh, people are dying. And uh, ultimately uh, you would think that, that doing something about that takes precedence. The, the, the last question I have, and we have a, about four minutes, I just sure. wanted to point out that Please. after the events, the national events and the, and the domestic terror uh, coup, attempted coup, uh, the governor sits with a very mixed record. Um, uh, he supported uh, President Trump even after Trump called neo-Nazis very fine people and encouraged the white supremacist Proud Boys to stand by. He, the governor, met with uh, fringe right-wing conspiracy theorists, the Delamuses. Um, uh, he's had uh, a very muted response, if any, to 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 what's gone on he condemned the violence in the capital as as everybody has but i'm wondering what whether you're what you're hearing yeah about any state efforts uh to tighten security to to deal with our homegrown uh, militias because new hampshire frankly is a hotbed of extremism. Uh, we're a libertarian, live free or die kind of state. Right. But it's also meant that we are, frankly, um, under the surface, a real hotbed for the kind of activity that resulted in what we saw at the Capitol. What are you hearing about state efforts? Is the governor serious about doing something about it? Is this is he coordinating things with the state police? Is he asking for help from the Department of Homeland Security? Are we seeing beefed up security in our state house or courthouses or, or, or other institutions that might be subject to uh, attack? Yeah, I think there's a lot of discussion going on about that right now, as there should be. Um, uh, and, and I do know, um, He's um, since Wednesday he had he'd spoken with the state police commissioner Bob, Robert Quinn about um, looking at uh, whether there needs to be more robust security around government buildings. Um, they haven't really come up with any plan yet. Uh, I think it's more they're in the assessment phase right now. But um, but uh, but I certainly wouldn't rule it out. Um, and uh, I think. I think these protests outside his house have been an awakening for him. I, um, uh, he, he wanted Homeland Security and emergency management to look, to look into the origin of the protests and the organizers of the protests and whether they were 
um, the, whether there were, was violent intent. Um, uh, and that continues to go on right now. Um, so um, I, I certainly wouldn't rule it out. I think they're, I don't think they're at a stage where they're re ready to make any pronouncements yet. Um, as you know, once again, New Hampshire stands out. And I say that in both positive and negative ways. The negative you spoke of, the fact we are so libertarian and anybody can practice and, and do whatever they want up here. And we're seen that way. Obviously, the free staters moved here, right? That, that approach, no question, is going to attract a number of extreme personalities, frankly, at, at both extremes, you know, extreme, extreme left, extreme right, extreme violent, extreme nonviolent. Uh, the positive is that I'm going to have to stop you oh, in okay. uh, a moment. I sure. think we're, yeah. we're just about out of time. We've been talking sure. with uh, veteran journalist Kevin Landrigan about the story in New Hampshire. We're going to have to stop at the negatives. That's Kevin, right. thanks for joining us on The Wrap. We'll have you back soon.